As I begin tonight, I just want to share a bit of our personal story, which, as you'll see in due course, illustrates the main thing that I want to focus on with you tonight. Debbie and I were brought up in Christian families, in our teens, as many, many teens do. We drifted a bit in terms of our commitment to following Jesus. And in 1981, John Wimber and a team visited Debbie's father's church. And though we weren't there, what happened and hearing about what happened, including some genuine miracles, it was the trigger for us both coming back to the Lord. The following year, we got to be in a meeting with John Wimber and his team, and we both had life-changing encounters with the Holy Spirit, which really changed the course of our lives. During the 1980s, the vineyard came over. There were conferences every year, pretty much, and we just made sure we were there. And we loved so much about the way these vineyard people did things, and we started to think, wouldn't it be amazing if there was a church which was a bit like these conferences, where there's engaging contemporary worship, where we experience the Holy Spirit as we sing, and our hearts melt in the intimate connection with him. We spent most of our time, in, me, I did, in tears through those years of worship, where you could uh, wear what you liked, even if you dressed in an unconventional way, where the teaching applied the Bible really accessibly and practically where people were equipped to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, where there was space in the meeting to be expectant that he would move, and where amazing healings and miracles happened. One of our not-yet-a-Christian friends, dressed all in black like a goth, struggled with a relatively traditional church that we were members of, and I think it was on his first visit, partway through the service, he just said, I'm sorry, I've got to go. I can't cope. With this, It was so foreign, the model, to his culture. And so we took him to a vineyard conference, took him up to Harrogate, got him in there. He loved it and came to faith shortly afterwards. We wondered whether there would ever be a church which was accessible to our friends who just didn't fit in traditional church culture. On top of all these dreams, I had a passion about something else. I was working full-time with homeless young people, some of them pretty rough-looking, and wonder whether there could be a church in which people like them could ever feel welcomed and at home, and where lots of people were equipped and released to care for the poor. And we thought, you know, that is how a church should be. We were young idealists. That's how a church should be. And we were members of a church here in Nottingham, and we did our best to influence that church to become what we felt it should be in some of the areas that I've just mentioned. We discovered, though, that it's hard as church members in your mid-20s to really influence significant change. And so the beginnings of our call to leadership came out of this divine discontentment. And we reached the conclusion that if we wanted to see a church like that, the Lord might be indicating that we would need to lead it. Now, we were a couple of artists who had never even led a small group. And here we were sensing God might be calling us to lead a church. Now, please don't hear me as being critical of the way other churches do things, okay? As Rick Warren wisely said, we need all kinds of churches for all kinds of people. And the church we were in was just right for many of the people there, and they would really struggle in a church like the one that we lead. It was just that for the kind of people that we were and the kind of people some of our friends were, we were yet to experience our kind of church. 
John Wimber had no intention of allowing vineyard churches to be planted in the UK. And so I went through the Church of England selection process in the hope that I would eventually, having been trained, I would get to lead a church and turn it into something as much like a vineyard as they would let me. Now, I think the selection committee cottoned on. They, they detected that and they said, no, I was not suitable to be a Church of England vicar. The following month, we were living in California attending the Anaheim Vineyard, and a few weeks after that, John Wimber agreed to let John and Ellie Mumford plant the first vineyard in the United Kingdom. (laughs) After a few more months there, uh, training as interns, we moved to London as the Southwest London Vineyard began, and we were there for nine years and uh, learned a huge amount under John and Ellie's leadership, and then we moved back to Nottingham to start this church. We had a vision of what could happen And by God's grace, it has become so much more. We had a deep sense of the qualities that we yearned to see in the church, and the Lord has multiplied it. Our passion to see people come to faith multiplied, and the Lord brought people with a greater heart for the loss and greater gifting in evangelism. Our longing that people who wouldn't fit in a normal church would find a home with us multiplied as the Lord brought those kinds of people and others all too ready to befriend them. Our passion for the poor multiplied as the Lord brought people to us with huge hearts of compassion and gifting, serving those in need. Our desire to see homeless people and addicts and those whose society has rejected integrated into the church family multiplied. The Lord brought those kinds of people and others who were supremely gifted at embracing and enfolding them. Our passion for contemporary, intimate, accessible worship multiplied as the Lord brought people with extraordinary gifting in songwriting and worship leading. As we've joined with God in his call on our lives, he has simply multiplied things beyond our wildest dreams. Tonight, I want to delve a bit deeper into this dynamic of multiplication, because I believe God is wanting to stir us as individuals, as churches, indeed as a movement, to a fresh level of expectation of what he could do if we say yes to doing it with him. We see this theme of multiplication throughout the scripture. Let's begin at the beginning, Genesis 1, the first command that God gave to mankind, be fruitful and multiply. Another translation, be fruitful and increase in number. Genesis 1.28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So Adam and Eve were commanded to multiply and to rule over the earth, to have babies and also to extend the rule and the reign of God, extend his kingdom. And this theme continues through the Old Testament with Abraham becoming the father of a nation whose descendants no one could count and through which the whole earth was going to be blessed. And then the New Testament opens with the explosion of the arrival of the kingdom of God. And we see this theme of multiplication In the miracles of Jesus, we see him extravagantly multiplying stuff. It must have been really fun to be with him. Wine. He created the equivalent of around a 1,000 bottles of wine at a wedding in Cana. 
fish and bread, enough to feed thousands with loads left over. In many of Jesus' parables, he talks about the dynamic of the kingdom of God using examples of things which multiply. The parable of the mustard seed, something very small, which grows to become the largest of all garden plants. Or the parable of the yeast expanding through dough, but enough dough in his, in his uh, parable there to make about 60 full-sized loaves of bread. The parable of the sower, where the seed landing on good soil yields a return of a hundredfold of what, what was sown. And of course, the parable of the talents, where the master commends his servants who have invested what was entrusted to them, and they've seen it multiply. It's evidently God's intention that we are fruitful. In John 15, Jesus said this, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is what disciples do. They're fruitful and stuff multiplies around them. And of course, Jesus leaves us with the Great Commission, which in summary is essentially this, go with my anointing and multiply disciples and through them multiply everything that I've entrusted to you. So you can see this theme of fruitfulness, of multiplication, is found from Genesis right through to Revelation. And we're seeing the outworking of this dynamic all over the movement. Let me highlight just a few examples of multiplication uh, through people, all of whom are here this evening. Grow Baby began in 2003, led by Peter and Noni Farrelly from Kingston Vineyard. Their aim was simple. It was to support local families in need, starting with the provision of free baby clothing and equipment. So they bought two plastic boxes, printed a basic leaflet, and Grow Baby was born. And since then, God has multiplied it incredibly. In 2019, they supported over 1,800 families, with over 2,000 more receiving 64,000 pounds worth of brand new gifts at Christmas. Almost 110,000 pounds worth of voluntary hours were given to the community, with many of those volunteers having originally been themselves recipients of Grow Baby. They've been recognized with awards, celebrating their commitment to the community and being an outstanding local project. And Grow Baby has multiplied as 30 other churches, mainly across the Vineyard Movement, but also beyond it, have followed that model. It's amazing. Wherever you are in the room, all honor to you. Cat and Mary, both pediatricians in 2007, moved to India to work among the country's most impoverished communities, starting the charity Love the One. Alongside the thousands of families that they have touched through the healthcare they provide, they now have nearly 400 children attending their six epic centers, that's early pediatric interventional care, and the children's center and their school. They employ 110 local staff and they're leading a vineyard church with almost 100 members, many of whom have come to faith through the church. <laughs> Shino and Shania, who came to faith in a vineyard from a Muslim background, have for a number of years shared the gospel via the internet 
with Somalians, people for whom committing their lives to Christ could mean imprisonment, it can even mean death. They now have a weekly television program which reaches into Somalia and other areas of Africa. And a week ago, I was talking to them, tonight I was talking to them, their overseer was there as well, and we were discussing what was going on. He showed me a photograph that he had taken one day in Shino and Shania's lounge. He walked into their lounge to find Shino leading someone to Christ on Skype, and at the same time leading someone else to Christ on his phone. And then Shania was talking on text with someone on her laptop who asked to be passed to Shino so he could lead him in a prayer of salvation. This is the moment captured on camera there. Initially, they weren't counting, but in the last three and a half years, they have carefully recorded the names of all the Somali Muslims they have personally led to Christ. I spoke to them early this evening, and as of today, that total is an amazing 3,597. That is history in the making. That's an average of about 20 a week between the two of them. Multiplication. We're seeing multiplication in various parts of the UK and Ireland, but I'd love to invite Chuck Freeland to give us a glimpse of what is happening through the church that he and Taryn lead in Aberdeen. Would you welcome Chuck? Gosh, I just feel a little bit undone by the last bit. Hang on a second. Uh, so our church had been pretty stuck for a while, uh, about 150 people for some years. And then suddenly the Lord just kind of flicked a switch in heaven and the church began to grow. And a whole bunch of people who really hadn't been connected to any church for their adult lives just suddenly became connected to our church and came to know Jesus. And it was just the most amazing thing. It was extraordinary. It was humbling. It was so delightful. And also it was really really stressful. We were just, in particular, uh, concerned about where we would put everyone, because we just have this small Baptist church building. It's about 100 years old, and uh, often it was rammed. And and so we tried to resolve that space issue in all kinds of different ways. Um, Tried to buy three different buildings, and each time they sold it to somebody else for less money than we had offered. And so after a while, we were so worried about what we would do, and I was so stressed out, that I was speaking to a, a, a guy who was a Pentecostal pastor down the road who were not using their building on a Sunday. And they said, well, hey, listen, you could use our building as a kind of overflow. And so that's what we decided to do. So we kind of figured out, well, whoever's preaching could just uh, preach in one place and then peg it down the road and speak in the next place. And we thought, well, we'll just do that temporarily until something else comes up. On well, the first Sunday, I preached in one place I arrived at the next place, slightly out of breath, and uh, I was met on the door by a lady who said, oh, welcome to our church. Are you new? I said, "Uh, no, I'm kind of the pastor. And and, uh, so anyway, we we met each other there, and then the people who were leading worship, to be honest, I didn't even know they played an instrument, and the truth is they barely did play an instrument, but... (laughs) They'd seen a guitar under their bed gathering dust, and they thought, hey, we could bring something to this new adventure. And then 
there were people on the tea and coffee team, and I had watched them for some weeks, sitting on the back row, kind of edging their way towards the back door, and suddenly it seemed like they'd seen their place too. And so what we realized actually really on week one was that we'd stumbled into God's kindness and his grace and his guidance. And so actually what we realized was now we were meeting in two places uh, spread just a few hundred meters apart. This could be a way to reach the entire region that we live in with the good news of Jesus, just in the northeast of Scotland there. And so actually that's what we decided to do. We went back to our church and the church gave unbelievably generously towards this new project. And so over the next few years, we span out. Uh, just every time the church grew a bit more, we put a site somewhere else in another market town until now we have, uh, uh, well, it depends how you count them, but uh, 11 different worshipping communities in eight different locations spread about 60 miles apart across the northeast of Scotland. And then, yeah, it's, it is pretty wild. And so then actually we, we uh, began to read the statistics about the church in Scotland and the number of churches that were being closed. And uh, we just began to weep and ask the Lord, Lord, what should we be doing about that? And we felt compelled actually to begin to plant churches in other parts of Scotland. And so uh, over the last two and a bit years, something like that, we've planted five churches in other parts of Scotland, uh, uh, literally all over Scotland from uh, far, the farthest west would be Greenock, uh, up to Inverness in the north, and then across to a whole bunch of places around where we are in the northeast of Scotland. Uh, it's amazing. And uh, so I tell you, it's been an absolute thrill, and it's been unbelievably humbling, and so totally overwhelming that there are now 16 beautiful, extraordinary church communities of all different sh shapes and sizes, literally all over our nation, that have grown from one little church in our city centre. Uh, and uh, that's really happened in the last eight years or so, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have come to know Jesus. So, thanks, John. God is extending his kingdom in these and countless other ways through multiplication. And, and what for? Is it that we just get bigger, faster, better, more, a load more spots on the church maps and more award-winning ministries? No, it is about the one. Cat and Mary in India are touching the lives of thousands of people. But large numbers are not exciting in themselves, but they are exciting because each and every one counted is a precious individual, hence the name of their charity, Love the One. And that is why we do what we do. It's about individuals. It's about individuals like Chris, who we connected with through the Carpenter's Arms. It's a rehab center, dozens of whose residents are part of our church family here. This is Chris telling his story. Uh, I first started using drugs. My mum and dad got divorced when I was four. My mum remarried two years later. My memories of my dad as a kid were good. He took us out swimming, etc. Got to later on, early teens, nothing, nothing there for my dad. Uh, nothing there for my mum as a child. She never picked me up, told me she loved me. My stepdad was just, a, just basically an alcoholic, violent. His mum and dad used to go out to the pub nearly every night a week. 
live us with babysitters. They'll come home, fight, smash house. So I'd be in my bedroom crying my eyes out. I didn't know who I was. I didn't feel loved. I was very frightened, very scared. And that, that went on throughout from when I was five all the way up to so 16, 17. So by the time I was 13, I just, I just rebelled school. Throughout all my school years, I was rebelling. Crying out for attention, really. Without knowing it, I was crying out for attention. I started smoking, smoking weed. So and everything I had, it was never enough. I'm, I couldn't smoke enough weed. I couldn't take enough ecstasy, cocaine, never enough. And then I found uh, crack cocaine. And that, uh, that just, it, I felt love. And then I felt heroin and I felt extra love, more of like I'd never experienced before. I knew it was wrong, but it did something to me that not, nobody else had done for me before. And then I didn't see the consequences and uh, I was a mess. I had hepatitis C, I was on methadone by the time I was 18. It ruined me. And by the time I was 18, I already had two children. So escapism for me was drugs without a shadow of a doubt. And yesterday I liked them, I loved them. I'm not going to lie, I absolutely loved it because it took me to a place where I felt loved and then the consequences killed me. And I'm still suffering, but I'm getting there, slowly. I first experienced it in 2008, and I went to this one called The Haven in Scotland, and everyone seemed happy, really peace and happy, and I thought, I want that. I want that, I'm sick of this, what I'm doing. So I, I asked Jesus into my arm, things that I felt this buzz, I was so happy and joyful, and rehab for me was brilliant but then, but then I left rehab and I went back to the real world. And I, I realised that I've just, I just did rehab, but I didn't deal with anything whatsoever. My struggles have always been life. Struggles is at home, because my, my dysfunctional childhood was, uh, it's, it still affects me. And when I go home, it's to see my kids and my wife, it takes me back to being a child again, and I can't cope, and that's why I keep running back to drugs, and I've, I've got to get a grasp of it. My, my wife des deserves a husband, my wife deserves a father, and I want that, that's all I've ever wanted is to be a dad and be an husband but clean and to go to church and normal things that normal people do without taking tablets, without drinking, without using drugs. That's all I've ever wanted. And uh, I'll get it because that's what, that, you know, God says I'll give you heart's desires and that's what I want. I'm, I'm going for that. I, I, ain't, I ain't losing this battle. I'm going for it. I've, 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 got, a, I've got a wonderful future, a lovely wife and four great kids and uh, it's just, it's time to grab hold of it. It really is time to grab hold of it. But I'm, I'm really, truly thankful. Thankful for my life, thankful for the, the friends and the people that have helped me. And just, yeah, most of all to Jesus. He's, he's done so much for me. But it's, uh, it, it's time to start living for him now and stop playing games. Every time we get to hear a story like that of someone's life being transformed, it reminds us of why we do what we do. Each story is unique, each one wonderful, and that is what we want to multiply. Jesus turning lives around all across the UK, all across Ireland, and well beyond that. I mentioned earlier John 15 verse eight, which says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. But this is not about trying harder, in our own strength. True fruitfulness is not something we can make happen. Verse five of that chapter is crucial to our understanding of fruitfulness. This is verse five of John 15. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Without him, we can do nothing of any eternal significance. It is so crucial in leadership in the church that we lead from a place of relationship with the Lord. That's where the sap comes from, which enables the fruit to grow. You know, it's exhausting as a branch trying to bear fruit without that vital connection to the vine. And as leaders, we are far from immune from the risk of striving. It's not happening like we hoped, so we work harder, we work longer hours, we try to muster up all we can to make this thing happen. It is so much more effective, as well as being a whole lot less stressful, to invest instead in our relationship with the Lord and trust Him with the results. Trust that He will enable fruit to grow, that He will enable things to multiply. We see the dynamic of multiplication most profoundly illustrated on the occasion when he fed 5,000. When a young boy who had almost nothing compared to the vast need was willing to place what he had in the Lord's hands. Jesus took this little boy's lunch, he gave it to his disciples, it multiplied enough to feed everyone and more. Far more than the boy or the disciples could ever have imagined. We can only do this with him. I love the song from Dave Miller's album, 12-1, Be Exalted, the words of which say this, would you take the little in my hands and use it for your glory? It's not much, but everything I have, use it for your glory. And the chorus, take the little that we have and fill it with your power for your glory. That's our prayer as we feel the Lord calling us to multiply as a movement. We look around our nations and see millions of people who need Jesus. We see godlessness and brokenness across society. We see culture marching headlong away from God's design and we wonder how can we make a difference? And the Lord, basically all he requires of us is to come to him and say, well how do you want to use me, Lord? Every one of us. And he'll take the little that we have and multiply it. There are numerous gifts God has entrusted individuals with throughout the body, and they're all important. But there is one gift which enables the others to be employed most effectively. That is the gift of leadership. It's not that the gift of leadership is more important than other gifts, but it is the gift which creates strategies and structures which provide opportunities for others to use their gifts most effectively. If we use the biblical picture of the church being a body, the leadership structure within it could be likened to the skeleton. It gives structure to the body. It supports all the other parts. An eye, you could argue, might not need a skeleton to see. But in order to be supported, and able to move to see much more effectively, it needs to be housed in a head bone, okay, in a skull, which is attached to the movable and flexible neck bone. And so the song goes on, if you're old enough to remember that. In order for a lung to breathe, and indeed to be protected, it needs to be housed within the rib bones, the rib cage. Every body part, every organ thrives as it is supported by the skeleton. The gift of leadership is the gift which releases all the other gifts within the body of Christ to function at their best. Our churches are full of gifted, talented, and willing people, and there is so much potential 
to extend God's kingdom everywhere in every way and leaders are essential to that happening. In Exodus 18, we find Moses leading the Israelites in the desert, but as hard as he is working, it's simply not enough. And in Exodus 18, verse 13, it says this, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Moses was the only one leading, and it just isn't working for him. It's not working for anyone. It's not working for those he's leading. And eventually, his father-in-law steps in, and he says, look, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly weigh yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So his father-in-law could see that one, he was wearing himself out, and two, the people's needs were simply not being met. And so he suggests that Moses appoints and empowers other leaders who would oversee other leaders as the work is shared out. He did, as Jethro suggested, lots of leaders were released to use their gifts of leadership, and vastly more was achieved. We're here at the National Leaders Conference investing in leaders. Why? Because leadership is so crucial. We want to multiply leaders who multiply leaders because in turn, this multiplies ministry and multiplies kingdom reflecting businesses and workplaces and multiplies disciples and small groups, and multi-sites, and churches, and community outreach, and pastoral care, and mission abroad, and everything else that goes on in the life of a church and a movement. You may be listening tonight and thinking, I hear you, I hear you, I'm getting the message, okay, but I'm not sure that I can make much of a difference, because I don't have much in the way of leadership gifting, or experience. I'm not very dynamic. You know, I'm not like one of those other leaders that the room is full of who are amazingly gifted and confident, magnetic personalities who light up any room they walk into. They always seem to have great ideas and can eloquently explain them. Anybody feeling anything like that? You don't have to put a hand up, but some of you will be. Don't let that hold you back. I'll let you into a secret. That's sometimes exactly how I feel. It's all relative. I have the privilege quite often of spending time with leaders who are so far beyond me in gifting, it makes my head spin. People leading churches and movements who always have something extraordinarily profound to teach, often multiple times a week, and they seem to do so without any notes, who write best-selling books while leading churches of tens of thousands and movements across numerous countries. Leaders who read voraciously, are charismatic and intuitive, future-focused, strategic thinkers, and everything they do seems, to me, so effortless to them. No matter how hard I worked, I couldn't do a fraction of what they do. Here's the good news. That's fine, because I'm not called to. I am who I am, who God created me to be, with my gifts and all my limitations. He called me to lead in the areas that he's chosen and was fully aware of every single area of weakness, every single limitation, before he called me. I find that pretty freeing. My job is to simply be the best, or rather do my best to be the best version of me that I can be and fulfill my calling. In my own strength, nothing much is gonna happen 
But when I put the little I have into God's hand and partner with him, things do happen. Things happen that amaze me. And that's the same for you. You are who you are. Uniquely designed, wired, and gifted by God to influence others in the unique arenas that he's put you in. We will lead in different places with different opportunities, bringing different experiences and gifting to the role. And while some will lead in more obvious and visible ways than others, we are all called to use the influence we have that we've been entrusted with. As Paul exhorts us in Romans 12 verse 8, if we are entrusted with leadership gifts, we are to lead diligently. Whether you're leading a company or a team or a small group, or an area of ministry, or a site, or a church, or something else. You are called, as I am, to discern the direction God wants those you're leading to head, and to head in that direction. And if indeed you are leading, then when you look over your shoulder, there will be others behind you. A few years ago, I was on holiday, and I went for a walk along the beach, and I noticed that there was a large pool of water two or three meters away from where the sea came up to. It was just a huge sandbank. It seemed to be filled with some sort of leaking pipe. And I wondered what it would take to join the two bodies of water. And so I picked up a piece of sea-worn roof tile, and I began to draw a line in the sand between the pool and the sea. What happened next was such a clear illustration of the power of leadership that I brought the tile home with me and it lives on my coffee table now in my study as a reminder, the power of leadership. This is the tile here. So I dragged it across the sand, making this little channel, just a few inches wide, a few inches deep, and then the fresh water followed my lead. It gently flowed along the channel that I carved out into the sea. So mildly amused, I continued my walk along the beach. About half an hour later, I passed the spot on my way back to the hotel and was shocked to find that my actions had been multiplied. My little groove, a few inches wide, was now huge. And I was so struck by what had happened, I pulled my phone out and took these pictures of the scene, regretting that I hadn't thought to photograph the little channel that I had dug earlier. The water following the path I made, had carved its way through the sandbank, and the channel was now over 10 feet across at its widest point and had created cliffs at the edges approaching a foot deep. What had been, and I'm assuming it had been there for a long time, but an impenetrable sandbank, a long-term obstacle constraining this fresh water, a barrier to its advance, was simply gone. And as I walked back to the hotel, I, uh, carrying my little tile there, I was just talking to the Lord about this, and I sensed him speaking to me about the multiplication dynamic of leadership. As leaders, there are times when we need to put our efforts into digging a channel, actually being the first one to go through what looks like an impenetrable obstacle. And then, by the grace of God, others follow, and the effect is multiplied, and extraordinary things happen. I reflected on what had recently happened in our church's journey and what was happening on this site at that very moment. A few months before walking on that beach, I'd cast the vision to redevelop a building just behind us here to house the arches, our main ministry to the poor, and also to fit out the cafe there. And as I was walking on that beach, these two building projects were just weeks from being completed. 
Over the years, we've done a number of expansion projects. We've often faced just massive obstacles, just impossible challenges with planning permission or you know, with finding project managers who can make it happen, let alone raising the money. Each time we've expanded, I, I've wrestled with the challenge and thought and prayed things like, Lord, do you know how much land costs? <laughs> These figures, what I've just been fed by the finance department, I've got to put into a brochure, they have way too many zeros. How on earth is this gonna happen? I feel so weak and vulnerable as I stand up and ask for millions of pounds from a congregation which has already given so much. As the leader of this building project, all I had was a God-given vision and my little sea-worn tile. I couldn't make it happen. But my role was to pray, take counsel from others, discern where God was leading, and then use my little tile to mark out a route, a direction, to do my part and invite others to follow. And what happened was absolutely amazing. Whatever God asks you to lead, however large or small, this principle is at work. When you lead, you go where you believe God is leading and where you want others to follow. And as others join you, your efforts are multiplied. On that beach, I had the idea, I don't suppose it was a God-given idea, I think it was just me being mischievous, but the idea of connecting two bodies of water, and what I had in my hand was a little sea-worn tile, and the two things came together to great effect. Here's an example of what Neil and Jenny, a couple from Winchester Vineyard did, with what God put in their heart and what he put in their hand. When Neil came home one day to say he'd put our name down for this complex, I thought, oh no, I'm not ready for that. I'm not old enough for that. I've got far too much going on. Over the next six months, God started to just work in my heart, really, and I started thinking about the opportunities that, that could arise if we did move in. I just thought, wow, if we're here with all these people around us, you know, God would be faithful and use us. There's all these people that need Jesus, that at the end of their life, time short, and um, it would be a great opportunity. The, the interest for us was being obedient to the Lord, telling us uh, where to go, rather than knowing what exactly we were going to do. We moved here when we're still well enough uh, to take part and do what we can to help the community we moved into. What became apparent to us was uh, there were a number of Christians in the block who have mobility problems and the only way they were going to get to a service is if we put one on here. So I got a team together and uh, we, we just went for it. I started to visit my neighbours and this gentleman who um, was, he's got Parkinson's and a, a little bit on the poorly side but um, he's very, he can't see and so I would start going before the service with the hymns that we were going to sing. So when he came to the service, he could um, join in and feel more comfortable. I said, are you born again? He said, oh no. I said, would you like to be? And so he said yes. And so we had a little talk about what it meant and I prayed with him. 
So we have one service a month uh, on a Sunday afternoon and we, we also run, just the two of us run with the people who come obviously, a Christian fellowship group. The reality is that real fulfillment comes by obedience to God wherever he puts you within the community that you're involved with. Just before I come into land, I just want to be clear about something. None of us can actually measure fruit, not, not really. We might count numbers or in some other way estimate how something has multiplied, but truthfully, those are pretty limited measurements. There is so much more and God sees what we don't see. What if you're serving faithfully, you're leading diligently, but there isn't apparently much measurable fruit to show for it. Might you still be fruitful and multiplying what God has entrusted to you? Absolutely. What if your faithful serving in the small things multiplies faithfulness in others? What if your prayer life stimulates others to pray? What if your modeling of love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control encourage that in others who went on to influence still others for generations. What if you pray faithfully or perhaps you coordinate a little prayer chain or lead a small prayer meeting? How can you even begin to measure the impact of those prayers? Who knows but that you have already played a part in a history-making kingdom advance which you are not even aware of. Who knows but that revival is on the way and your faithfulness in the prayer room was a key domino in its advance. What if you sow gospel seeds in conversation with colleagues and with the person at the supermarket checkout and you have seen almost no apparent fruit from your efforts? Who knows whether you might already have played a key part in someone really gifted in evangelism coming to faith. You won't know until you get to heaven. And perhaps a multitude of people queue up to thank you personally for what you faithfully did, which meant that they are now there. I love the story of a Sunday school teacher who almost no one has heard of by the name of Edward Kimball. How many of you know who Edward Kimball was and what he did? It would appear that zero out of 1,500 people, okay? So no one's really heard of him. Oh, there is one. Well done. Fantastic. Uh, see me afterwards, I'll buy you a drink. <laughs> On April 21st, 1855, seriously, I will. He responded to a prompting by the spirit to stop by a shop where the nephew of the owner was a semi-illiterate 18-year-old. Apparently, Edward nearly didn't go in, but he later wrote this, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. I found him in the back part of the building wrapping up shoes. I went up to him at once and putting my hand on his shoulder, I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. 
This lad responded with a yes, and Edward led him in a prayer of commitment. This young man went on to become a preacher who said this, I know perfectly well that wherever I go and preach, there are many better preachers than I am. All that I can say about it is that the Lord uses me. And he did. The young man's name was Dwight L. Moody, and over the subsequent decades, he is thought to have led as many as a million people to Christ. I wonder whether Edward Kimball's Sunday school teacher, who decades earlier had led a very small group of children week in and week out, ever knew even a glimpse of the fruit of the multiplication of her faithful efforts. I wonder whether the pastor of the little rural church that Edward Kimball grew up in, who faithfully served his congregation and parish with little apparent fruit, ever knew the impact and fruitfulness of his ministry. I wonder about the numerous people who were used by God at key moments on Edward Kimball's journey towards faith, who may have felt their lives had little apparent fruit. It's going to be such fun for them in heaven when they get to see what God did through them. So as we lean into fruitful multiplication, we are joining in with God's kingdom dynamic. And while we love to see the results in tangible ways, as we are faithful in fulfilling our calling, we can trust that God sees more than is apparent to us. This evening, I want to ask each of you, what has God put in your heart? I began talking tonight about what God put in Debbie's and my heart a longing to see a church which would be and do all those things that we felt a divine, a divine discontentment about. What might that be for you? Do you have a divine discontentment? If you're not clear, ask the Lord to stir your heart, to share his heart with you, to give you a glimpse of what he wants to happen, which without you, is not going to happen. You are the only person who is where you are with the experience and gifts that you have at this moment in history. You are unique. And God has something unique for you to do. Some of you know it. Your heart is stirred now. Others of you are not clear. Ask the Lord tonight and through this week. Ask the Lord. It's a dangerous question because he might begin to stir your heart up and it might get uncomfortable. Divine discontentment is uncomfortable. Yearning for things to change can be frustrating. But it's often the trigger for fruitful multiplication of what God has put in your heart. And then what has God put in your hand? Like the little boy's lunch, it might not look like much, but placed in the hands of the Lord, it could multiply. What gifts, experience, opportunity has he entrusted to you? What does your little roof tile look like? What tool has he given you to mark out a direction, perhaps, for others to follow? Again, like my little sea-worn roof tile, it may not seem much in the face of the obstacles which stand between you and what's in your heart. But with the leadership gifting which is entrusted to you, what might it look like for you to lead diligently? This evening, there's an invitation for us all. No matter what we're leading 
or what we might sense the Lord is stirring us to do, to come to the Lord with the lyrics of that song as our prayer. It's not much, but would you take the little in my hands and fill it with your power for your glory? And I believe he will answer that prayer for the sake of thousands of precious individuals like Chris and the gentleman with Parkinson's whose lives might be transformed as they encounter the Lord and through whom God's kingdom is extended.